So starting off, my colleague Nick Metcalf, who's a partner at the Corporate Governance and Compliance Department of Mason, Hayes and Kern, is going to say a few words about beneficial ownership and the obligations on companies to keep registers. Then we're going to be joined by the Register of Companies, Maureen O'Sullivan. And uh, Maureen uh, has uh, several uh, titles. Uh, she's also the Registrar of Friendly Societies. And in June later this year, she'll be taking up the position of Register of Beneficial Ownership of Companies and Industrial and Providential Societies. So uh, three titles in one. So we're delighted to have her here today to tell us about what she's going to be doing uh, in terms of the new registers that are going to be maintained um, by, by the new office that she holds. So uh, we'll follow up then at the end uh, with questions and answers which will be facilitated and shared by my partner, Claire Lord. Uh, and we're going to have you all out of here uh, at nine on time so you can get to your desks and not lose uh, too much of the day. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Nick. Thank you all for coming. Morning, everybody. Uh, as David said, uh, my name is Nick Metcalf. Uh, I'm a partner in our corporate governance and compliance team. And I'm going to talk this morning uh, fairly briefly about parts one and two of the uh, European Union Anti-Money Laundering Ownership of Corporate Entities Regulations 2019. Those parts are currently in force. They came into force on the 22nd of March 2019. Uh, and then part three, which establishes the central register uh, and which will come into force on the 22nd of June of this year, uh, will form the, part, uh, the basis of, of Maureen's talk afterwards. So just by way of background, and as David alluded to uh, in his introduction, the, uh, the regulations are designed to implement uh, the European Union's fourth anti-money laundering directive as that directive has, has been amended by the fifth. And the idea is to combat money laundering and terrorist financing. And the rationale, uh, according to for AMLD, is that is to uh, put together a repository of information on the beneficial ownership of corporate entities to try to, to try to find criminals who might otherwise hide their identi identity behind a corporate structure. Uh, and the way that that will be done is to establish uh, a central register so that the authorities can access the information they need without the company or other corporate entity in question being aware that they are in being investigated. And that directive prompted in November 2016 the first set of these regulations, which had the same catchy title, uh, and those regulations obliged, and all corporate entities, well, most corporate entities in Ireland, are currently obliged to obtain and hold information on their beneficial owners and to compile that information on a, on a register uh, which they keep internally. So these new regulations, uh, as I mentioned before, parts one and two of these regulations came into force on the 22nd of March 2019. Part one deals really with definitions and interpretation, but part two revokes and restates the 2016 regulations sorry, in full without making any changes to the text of those regulations, but it does make a few additions, which I will come on to as the slides go through. But just to establish a few basics, uh, the regulations apply to all relevant entities, and relevant entities are defined as a corporate or other legal entity incorporated in the state, with one exception, effectively 
two exceptions, and that is a company whose own shares are listed on a regulated market, which is either subject to EU transparency laws or to equivalent international standards. So other than that, it catches every other company, it catches uh, industrial and provident societies, it catches ICABs, to name the three most obvious uh, corporate vehicles used in Ireland. So having established to, to which entities it applies, the next question really is what is a beneficial owner? And the regulations import the definition of beneficial owner direct from the fourth anti-money laundering directive. And it is a natural person, that, that is a, a human being, who either owns or controls a legal entity through uh, direct or indirect ownership, uh, and I'll come on to direct or indirect shortly, of a sufficient percentage of shares or voting rights or other kind of in, uh, uh, ownership interest, or who controls a relevant entity through other means, uh, maybe via a shareholders agreement or, or something of that nature. Uh, and the directive uh, states that uh, a relevant percentage of shareholding will not be definitive, but it's, it's uh, usually one evidential factor. And the vast majority of, of certainly of companies are going to ascertain who their beneficial owners are by looking at who owns the shares and in what percentages. And the relevant percentage is 25% plus one share. That is the the maximum uh, limit which the, uh, the directive laid down. It did uh, allow member states to go for a lower limit, uh, but I, the Irish regulations don't do so. So just by way of, of some quite basic examples, uh, this would be an example of direct ownership. There is a company there, it is owned by two individuals, each of whom own 50%. Clearly, each of those uh, individuals owns more than 25% of the company, and they are beneficial owners for the purposes of, of these regulations. Indirect ownership, the, the, the Irish company to whom the regulations apply is at the bottom of the chain. There is at least one holding company in between them, but there could be any number, and they can be in any jurisdiction. Provided that the bottom percentage here is 100%, then person A and person B each indirectly own 50% of the bottom company. They are, again, beneficial owners for the purpose of the, of the legislation. Just by way of counterexample, were the percentage which the holding company held in the, in the Irish company, say, 40%, uh, even my maths can tell you that the individuals would only indirectly own 20% of the bottom company, and they would not, therefore, be beneficial owners for the purpose of the, of the, of the regulations. And, and just a further example of, of indirect ownership, if the individual person A only owned the 18% direct shareholding and didn't own any, any of company one there, that person would not be a beneficial owner because his or her shareholding would be less than 25. S similarly, if the, if the person did not have a direct ownership stake, but his or her ownership only came via a 10% stake through the company one, he or she would not be a beneficial owner. But because the person owns uh, an aggregate amount of 28%, th they are a beneficial owner for the purpose of, of, the, of the regulations. And what that means, Sorry, I beg your pardon. Uh, but it is not always the case that a company will have beneficial owners. The obvious example would be a company which has five direct equal shareholders. Each of those shareholders would obviously own only 20%. Uh, and they would not be classed as beneficial owners for the purpose of the, of the regulations. Similarly, if the company in question is a subsidiary of a, a listed company, it's, it is very rare that a listed company would have an individual who owned more than 25%. And so it isn't unusual for there to be circumstances where the directors of a company or a relevant entity uh, can 
look at their shareholding all the way up the corporate chain and uh, come to the conclusion that there are no beneficial owners for the purpose of the regulations. And what the regulations require there, provided there are no grounds for suspicion there, is that the, the uh, relevant entity puts the particulars of its senior managing officials on the register. And what that means uh, well, under the regulations, the definition of senior managing officials includes a director and a chief executive officer. What it means in practice is almost in every set of circumstances, the directors have their particulars put on the register. And those particulars are, in the case of both beneficial owners and senior managing officials, the name, the date of birth, nationality, residential address, and the nature or extent of the ownership or control. And where there are no beneficial owners and where the senior managing officials' details are put on the register, uh, a note to that effect will suffice that the, these people are not actually owners. They are there because that no owners can be identified. And as you would expect, with this being a statutory register, there is an ongoing obligation to keep the information uh, up to date. The 2019, all of what I've just discussed there is, is a carryover from the 2016 regulations. The 2019 regulations introduced a new obligation which is currently in force, and that is for all relevant entities to obtain the PPS number of each beneficial owner, and uh, as you'll see, I'll put a quote there, to whom such number has been issued. Uh, that information, the PPS number, is to be obtained and presumably retained by the company or the relevant entity in question. <coughs> but it's not, it's not to be included on the beneficial ownership register and it is not to be disclosed to any person uh, who has access to the, the internal registers and who I will come on to in, in the next couple of slides. And it also does apply where there are no beneficial owners under the definition contained in the regulations and where the senior managing officials are placed on the register. The re latest regulations carry forward uh, various notice requirements uh, from the 2016 regulations. It is an obligation on every relevant entity to send a notice under Regulation 7 to the persons whom the directors of the relevant entity have reasonable cause to believe is a beneficial owner, uh, setting out that belief and the information which the company has on the beneficial owner and asking the beneficial owner to confirm that, that they agree effectively or where they don't, why they don't. Uh, if the directors of a uh, relevant entity do not have reasonable cause to believe they know who a beneficial owner is, but they think they know someone who might know, then under Regulation 9 they can send a notice to that person asking them to give the relevant entity whatever information that uh, that person has on the beneficial ownership of that company. An obvious example there would be where the shares in a company are held on trust uh, under the Companies Act. The, the, the company need only be aware of the identity of the trustee as legal owner and so the directors having that information could serve a regulation 9 notice on the trustee asking the trustee to let them know who the beneficial owners are so that that information can be collected and put on the register and then under regulation 11 uh, there is uh, a mechanism for uh, the directors of a relevant entity to serve notice on their beneficial owners uh, stating that they believe there's been a change to the beneficial owner's particulars and asking again the beneficial owner to confirm that is the case or not. Uh, there are also, and again these carry forward from the 2016 regulations, obligations on a beneficial owner to notify the relevant entity of which he or she is a beneficial owner uh, that, that that is the case and uh, where his or her particulars have changed uh, that information too. 
so I mentioned earlier that the latest regulations introduce a right of access to various uh, organisations to a company's uh, relevant entities, sorry, internal beneficial ownership register. Uh, and the state bodies who have access are the guards, the revenue commissioners, uh, competent authorities, and I, I will explain on the next slide uh, what a competent authority is for these purposes, the Criminal Assets Bureau, and an inspector appointed by the Director of Corporate Enforcement under the Companies Act. Any of those state bodies who access the information on a uh, relevant entity's beneficial ownership register can share that information with an equivalent body in another EU member state on request. For these purposes, a competent authority is, is, uh, takes the definition from the Criminal Justice uh, Act uh, recited there. It is effectively a governing body of a class of designated person, where a designated person is any person required to carry out customer due diligence. Uh, I've listed some of the more obvious ones there, financial institutions, legal professionals, accountants and auditors, etc. And it follows, therefore, that competent authorities include the central bank, the law society, the bar council, and, uh, and so forth. In addition to those bodies, uh, where a relevant entity entered into a, an occasional transaction or a business relationship with a designated person of the, of the type I've just described, the relevant entity uh, shall effectively assist the designated person in carrying out its customer due diligence by providing information on its beneficial ownership. Uh, and there is an ongoing uh, obligation, as you'll see at the third bullet point, to notify uh, any such designated person to whom information has been provided of any change in that information. And an occasional transaction is a transaction in relation to which the designated person is required to apply customer due diligence in accordance with the uh, Criminal Justice Act 2010. And uh, to give an obvious example, this would include where a firm of solicitors takes on a new corporate client. Uh, there is an, obli on, an obligation on the firm to ascertain who the beneficial owners of that client are uh, and so a request will be made and it would have to be fulfilled under these regulations. Uh, any failure to comply with the request can carry on indictment, a fairly heavy fine. And since we're on the subject of fines, uh, the, the uh, regulations carry forward the 2016 uh, criminal offences for failure to give proper notice uh, and extend the failure to comply with the notice. So to use the example I mentioned before of a, a relevant entity has its shares held on trust. The uh, directors do not know who the beneficial owners of that trust are. They serve notes on the trustee asking for information on those beneficial owners. If the trustee does not respond, or sorry, I beg your pardon, if the trustee responds making a knowing, knowingly or recklessly false statement, then uh, uh, there can be a custodial sentence uh, imposed. And uh, finally, as far as offences go, uh, the major obligation under the, uh, under the regulations is for a under part two of the regulations is for a relevant entity to keep a register of its beneficial ownership. If a relevant entity fails to do so, it is a criminal offence and uh, again, uh, that entity could be subject to a fine not exceeding half a million euro on indictment. Now, that's all I wanted to say about part two and, and Maureen will touch on this part herself, I'm sure, but as there are probably some representatives of a few designated persons in the room, I just wanted to, to uh, draw your attention to one part of part three, which involves des designated persons. And that part requires, uh, that, sorry, that regulation requires that where a designated person has knowledge of the information on a relevant entity's beneficial, internal beneficial ownership register, which uh, it, 
bound to have if it's conducting its customer due diligence, and then uh, obtains information from the central register on that relevant entity once the register is up and running. And having done so, forms the opinion that there is a discrepancy between the two. There is an obligation on the designated person to advise the registrar of that discrepancy, and any failure to do so uh, is a criminal offence which is punishable by a Class A fine. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody, and uh, thank you very much. I'm very pleased to have been asked to come here today just to um, uh, go through with you the, I suppose, the, the practical elements of the establishment of the register. Um, hopefully, I'll be able to answer some questions, but we're still uh, considering the statutory instrument, and there probably will be some questions I'm not able to answer, but if not, I'll, uh, I'll do my best. So first of all, the uh, central register, the statutory instrument that was signed just on the 22nd of March, uh, provides that the central register will be um, established on the 22nd of June 2019, which is Saturday. And uh, relevant entities will then have a five month period in which uh, they can file information with the central register. So that uh, five month period expires on the 22nd of November. And in the meantime, any newly incorporated entity uh, that comes into existence after the register has been set up must file within five months of their incorporation. So the information that has to be filed is basically the information that's on already on the uh, register that the company or entity has itself. So that's the name, date of birth, nationality, and residential address of each beneficial owner a statement of the nature and extent of the interest held and the or a statement of the nature and extent of the control exercised and the name and number of the entity as it appears on either the register of companies or the register of industrial and provident societies and just to kind of clear up something there um, we've you know we've noticed that uh, obviously the definition of rele relevant entities does uh, incorporate ICAVs but um, this register is not um, designed for ICAVs, it's for um, entities that are registered by either the company's registration office, <coughs> excuse me, or the um, Registry of Friendly Societies. There will be separate arrangements made for ICAVs and that's being handled by the Department of Finance. The, uh, as Nick mentioned, the PPS number of each uh, beneficial owner to whom such number has been assigned now that um, does, uh, there, there is a provision in the uh, statutory instrument then that the registrar can, I suppose, decide what information can be provided if the person doesn't have a PPS. That's something that we're looking at at the moment, so I can't uh, enlighten you on how that's going to, uh, going to turn out, but it's something we're, we're considering. And again, any changes uh, to the beneficial ownership details will have to be notified to the registrar within 14 days uh, of their occurrence. So the operation of the register, as I mentioned, it will open on the um, 22nd of June. Filing will be electronic only through a dedicated portal and it will be free to file. And the information can be filed on an entity's behalf by a presenter 
and uh, one of the regulations in the SI sets out the information to be provided by the presenter, so they will also have to give their name, address, telephone number and email address and the capacity in which they're acting. And then any information on the register will be destroyed 10 years after the dissolution of the entity, so we won't be holding on to it forever. Again, um, Nick was talking about the access to the uh, companies and uh, entities' own registers. There will be unrestricted access to the central register for the same group of people. So it's the Garda Síochána, uh, the FIU, um, which is the Financial Investigation Unit, uh, Revenue Commissioners, Criminal Assets Bureau, and the various competent authorities, and an inspector appointed <coughs> under um, section 7641, only that section of the Companies Act. And just to note there that PPS details which will have been submitted as part of the filing will not be available even under the unrestricted access, so they will be kept private. <coughs> there will also be restricted access to the register and that will be um, to available to designated persons uh, who perhaps have a business relationship with an entity or they're um, undertaking uh, customer due diligence measures and to a member of the public. And there will be a small fee for access to the register. Um, and just to note as well that under the restricted access, searchers will only be able to search by the name of the entity. So they can't just put in somebody's name and say, you know, let's just see how many companies or entities this person uh, is the beneficial owner of. That won't be possible. It'll be like the searches in the company's office where you, you actually search by company only. So the information that will be available under the restricted access will be um, the name, month and year of birth, not the actual day, and the country of residence and the nationality of each owner, so the uh, person's address won't be available either, and the statement uh, of the nature and extent of the interest or the control uh, exercised by each beneficial owner. And then um, there is a provision that access to information on a beneficial owner who is a minor will be at the discretion of the registrar. So in that uh, instance, if somebody is looking for information about a minor who is um, a beneficial owner, they will have to uh, write to the registrar and set out the reasons why they feel that releasing that information would be in the public interest. And the registrar then makes a decision. And if they can make out a substantial grounds of in the public interest to release the information, then it can be released. Again, Nick mentioned the reporting of discrepancies. So um, if either competent authorities or designated persons form an opinion that there's a discrepancy between what's on the central register and what's on the, um, the, the entity's own register or other information that they may have come across, uh, they must notify the registrar. The registrar then may note on the register that there's a discrepancy has been reported. But whether um, we do that or not, we must notify the entity and we must ask them for um, either, as Nick said, to resolve the issue or explain that it's not a discrepancy and they will have a time frame in which to respond. So uh, after the initial five month filing period, the enforcement um, proceedings will, or the enforcement provisions, I suppose, will, will kick in in terms of filing at least. 
um, the registrar at that stage, we will issue reminders to entities which have failed to file. Um, there are a number of offences which we've looked at already in the regulations and um, summary proceedings um, in relation to offences can be brought by either the DPP or the registrar. Um, obviously, can, um, cases on indictment are D DPP. We're trying to uh, raise awareness of this. I know a lot of people are very aware in any event of, um, of this, and, and obviously that explains why there are so many of you here this morning. Um, but we uh, are um, working on a website that's going to go live on the 29th of April. Now, it will expand and develop, you know, what's going live on the 29th of April will be basic enough, but we'll add to it uh, as we go. We also have um, accounts on Twitter and LinkedIn, and they'll be updated regularly. And we're also going to contact all relevant entities individually, um, either by email or by letter. So the emails will go to the companies because we have email addresses for all companies on our register. Uh, the letters will go to industrial providence societies because um, we don't necessarily have email addresses for them. The, the um, RFS uh, has only gone online uh, in the last couple of months and it's not mandatory. So we don't, we're going to write to people and use the, the addresses that we have. And uh, so that's, I think, basically um, it. Uh, and um, I'd be happy to try and answer any questions that you have. And thank you very much. everybody. Um, big thanks to, to Nick and Maureen for um, their very informative um, talks this morning and we'll now open the floor, op uh, we now open the floor to, to questions. Um, I might actually kick off the, the questions. I, I did have two um, um, and we, 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 we might start with, with one of the more procedural ones. Um, so the, the RBO website we hear will go live on the 29th of April and then on the 22nd of June, it, there, it will be mandatory for, for the, the um, information to be on the central register in respect of companies and um, industrial and provident societies. In terms of the access that the, the public and that um, uh, designated bodies like ourselves will have, we're very used to using the CRO website as it is presently in order to search for information on companies. Will the information be as accessible or be as easy to access or is there likely to be a delay in terms of getting access to the information? No, there shouldn't be any delay. It, it obviously will be in a different format, and I think it'll, um, it'll be delivered in something that's more akin to the company printout. Uh, you know, if you search on our website, you'll either get a printout of the company information or you can access a document. Clearly, there's no document because people have filed online through a portal, so they're not submitting anything to us. But that's, uh, we don't expect it will take very long. And, but we do have to bear in mind that um, there's a five-month filing period. While the register will open on that date, I'd be very surprised if 225,000 companies file on day one or indeed, you know, uh, even day two. And so there may not be a lot of information available initially. And, uh, you know, so people might find when they search initially that there's nothing coming back. Yeah. doesn't necessarily mean the system isn't working, it just means that people haven't filed yet. Thank you, Maureen. And speakers to, to my colleague Nick and to Maureen for coming down here this morning. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much.